Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and co-host, Patricia Glover-Howard. Hi, Patricia. Good evening, Bernice. How are you? Oh, just doing fine, Patricia. Well, everyone, Patricia will monitor the chat room and post comments concerning our discussion tonight. I'm so happy to welcome the callers, the chatters, and the descendants of the GU-272 to research at the National Archives and beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. Well, tonight's show will focus on the lost Jesuit slaves of Maryland, And this is a call to action, to get the word out, okay? So I want everyone to understand that, as I said before, this is a call to action. And our guest tonight is Mr. Richard Cellini, who is the founder of the Georgetown Memory Project. Now, in 1838, Georgetown University and the Maryland Jesuits sold nearly 300 enslaved men, women, and children to sugar plantations in southern Louisiana in order to recuse the college from bankruptcy. Until late 2015, Georgetown University folklore said that all of them quickly succumbed to fever in the swamp world of Louisiana, leaving no trace and no descendants. But this wasn't true. And so we have Mr. Gelini. And Mr. Gelini founded the Georgetown Memory Project. He is a graduate from Georgetown University, with a bachelor's degree. In 1988, and a law degree he received in 19, excuse me, his bachelor's degree was received in 1984 and his law degree in 1988. And so I'm going to have him come on because he has a lot to share with us, folks. So let me give a warm welcome to Mr. Richard Cellini, 
to research at the National Archives and Beyond. Welcome, Richard. Thank you very, very much. It is a great, great pleasure and an honor to be here with you, your co-host, and your audience. I'm thrilled to uh, have this opportunity to be in this conversation at this time about this topic. Well, I am thrilled to have you on the show. And I'm going to do a little sound check right now because some of the people are stating that they're not hearing us. Oh, yes, I think they're hearing us now. Okay, we're going okay. So why don't you help us understand what is the Georgetown Memory Project? Well, thanks for that uh, introduction. The Georgetown Memory Project, uh, first and foremost, is an independent nonprofit research institute. Um, And its purpose and its mission and its goal is to locate um, the approximately 272, really nearly 300 enslaved people sold by Georgetown University and the Maryland Jesuits in 1838, and also to trace and identify their direct descendants, living and deceased. Um, The Georgetown Memory Project was founded by alumni, friends, and allies of Georgetown, uh, but it is independent of Georgetown University and the Maryland Jesuits. In fact, we receive no financial support whatsoever from Georgetown University or the Maryland Jesuits. The whole thing got started um, in uh, November of 2015 when uh, there were some student protesters at Georgetown protesting um, the details of this 1838 slave sale. Um, the slave sale had never been a secret in the past, but the protesters, the student protesters uh, in November of 2015, really kind of brought high definition to it. They brought a lot more specificity to the topic than anybody had ever done before. Specifically, they brought everybody's attention to the fact that it was, you know, 272 or approximately 300 men, women, and children sold all at once to three sugar plantations in southern Louisiana by the um, priests who were the presidents and leaders of Georgetown University. So that that really captured my attention as a Georgetown alumnus. Uh, Most of the discussion and the debate was very much focused on Georgetown. You know, I like to say that that the discussion and debate around the GU-272 was more focused on the GU than on the 272, if you see what I mean. It was focused on whether there should be plaques on campus or the campus tour should be changed. Anyway, I sent an email to a very, very senior member of the working group, the official working group the president had established, and I said, You know, my question is, what happened to the people? What happened to the 272 men, women, and children who were sold to southern Louisiana in 1838? And uh, that really was the day that the Georgetown uh, Memory Project was born. Um, You know, mostly because, as you say, um, I received an email in reply that said, um, you know, Richard Georgetown University looked into this a couple of years ago. And what we discovered, according to this email, was that they all immediately died of a fever um, in what he called the malodorous swamp world of Louisiana, and they left no trace and no descendants. When I saw that, I knew that something wasn't right. And and that really is what sparked um, the initiative to go off in search of 
the original members of the GU-272, the ancestors as they're known, and their direct descendants living and deceased. And there's already a question. Where did that myth come from that they died? You know, that is a very penetrating, interesting, powerful question. I've always said that what's remarkable about the statement that they all died isn't that it was said and known to be false. That would be remarkable. But what's even more remarkable, I think, is that it was said and it was believed to be true, I th- and which, which is even more remarkable and in some ways even more unsettling. I, I think what you're hearing in that sort of myth is uh, 180 years of, you know, people at Georgetown basically making themselves feel better. Um, because I, I think that I, I think it, I think it would have been terrifying for people. It was terrifying enough for people to imagine that these 272 men, women and children were shipped to southern Louisiana. But I think it would have been even more terrifying and even un, even sort of unbearable to imagine that, oh, my God, perhaps they survived, you know, survived not just the Civil War, but even survived the 19th century and that some of them were alive well into the 20th century. And I think that, you know, the predominantly white people at Georgetown over the decades began telling themselves a myth that made them feel better somehow. Well, I'm glad that you and others have chosen to say, wait a minute, something's wrong with that. Let's look into it. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, go ahead. I was just going to ask you to tell us a little bit more about the the history of the sale of the enslaved men and women by the Jesuits, and when were they sold and to whom? Yes, yes, yes. Um, the the sale was not a spur-of-the-moment, one-time kind of thing. It took years of debate in the 1830s um, before it was executed. Um, the sale itself um, took five years to roll out. It, it, it sort of – people were being rounded up and shipped from the Jesuit plantations in Maryland to southern Louisiana – between um, 1838 and 1843. Um, The money, they were sold to uh, two Southern plantation owners, uh, Governor Henry Johnson of Louisiana and his business partner, Dr. Jesse Beatty. Between them, the two men owned three different plantations, but they were partners in this purchase. But the money, $115,000, was actually not collected all at once or paid all at once. Um, The money was paid in a series of notes that stretched over a 25-year period uh, from 1838 until the final note was finally paid off in 1862. So there was nothing uh, spur of the moment or impulsive about this. This was a transaction of the most evil sort that was absolutely deliberate and planned and and thoughtful and deliberate. Um, it spanned, you know, decades. Uh, and yet at no time uh, did anybody stop it. At every step along the way, somebody stepped in to kind of grease the wheels of this evil commerce, if you will, and um, make sure that the transaction went through. It took uh, – you know, decades to happen, and it took the involvement and complicity and cooperation of many, many people 
Um, it was not a, you know, it was not a, 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 a flash in the pan or one bad thing done on one bad night by one person. There were many, many people over many, many years who were involved in this sale. And this sale, when you when you spoke of three sites of different plantations, where were these plantations located? Well, they were all in southern Louisiana. Um, they were actually in three different parishes, sort of form a semicircle um, around Baton Rouge. Um, so um, the three locations are um, a town called Maringuin, which is Cajun French for mosquito. So you can sort of imagine what Maringuin is like. It's a little bayou town um, in Iberville Parish, which is about... 45 minutes outside of Baton Rouge. That was one of the three destinations of the GU-272. And then a little bit to the south of that um, was a plantation called the Chatham Plantation, and that was in Ascension Parish, Louisiana, near a town called Donaldsonville. And then um, the third uh, location um, was the furthest south, along this sort of semicircle, um, and that was in Terrebonne Parish um, near uh, a town called, two towns really, Homa and Gray. And uh, so those were the three, um, those were the three locations. You know, it's interesting that um, as late as early 2016, uh, nobody at Georgetown had a clear idea where those three locations, where, where the slaves were sent. Uh, one was clear, the, the historical record at Georgetown was clear that one group of slaves had been sent to Ascension Parish near Donaldsonville. But the record at Georgetown um, really had kind of mangled and garbled the other two names. And it was actually the Georgetown Memory Project that, that figured out the location of the other two places. So uh, the second place was known in the Georgetown archives as the Bayou uh, Mango, which is not a real place. It doesn't exist. There's no place called the Bayou Mango. And it actually took the Georgetown Memory Project to figure out that they were referring to the Bayou Maringuin. Um, in, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the, the third place was recorded at Georgetown as being in uh, uh, the Bayou uh, Tabon, T-A-B-O-N, and again, there's no such place. And our genealogists figured out that it was a reference to the Bayou Terrebonne. Um, and and so the Georgetown Memory Project really, you know, I mean, the, the level of ignorance uh, at Georgetown about the ultimate destination of these individuals was very high. I mean, really only one of the three plantations was even known as late as January 2016. So it took our researchers to be able to identify all three plantations. So that that was, you know, that in and of itself was kind of a big breakthrough. So we know where they went, the three locations in Louisiana. Now, wh- where did they come from in Maryland? By and large, they came from um, five um, tobacco plantations in southern Maryland that were owned and um, operated by the Maryland Jesuits. They were in uh, uh, St. Mary's County, uh, Charles County, and then another one of the plantations really kind of straddled the line between 
uh, Prince George's County and Anne Arundel County. So um, there were four or five plantations. There were subplantations, et cetera. Sometimes the lines, you know, got a little bit confusing, but four or five plantations in those, you know, three locations. There were also enslaved people at Georgetown College, as it was known um, in those days in Washington, D.C. And slaves were moved between these locations, but primarily they were from um, St. Mary's County, Maryland, Charles County, uh, Prince George's, uh, and, and uh, Anne Arundel County. So I understand that the, the descendants came together recently in Louisiana. So tell us about the the number of descendants that have been identified, and then let's talk about those that are missing and, and why sure. and how they're missing. So as I said, the Georgetown Memory Project set as its mission – um, identifying the original members of the GU-272 and also um, tracing as many of their direct descendants as we possibly could living and deceased. So here it is almost three years later, and I can report um, the following progress to date. Of the, um, the ancestors, the enslaved people who were sold from the original GU-272, the Georgetown Memory Project has now identified and located and documented the lives of 211 of them, um, which is actually pretty good. That's about two-thirds. Uh, there's nothing wrong with the other 60 or 70 or 80. We'll find them. Um, it just takes time, takes some money, takes some effort. But um, um, I believe we will find at least most of them, if not all of them. But we have found 211 of the um, original members of the so-called GU-272. And then on the descendant side, to date, we have identified 6,286 direct descendants living and deceased. And we estimate that at least 3,000 of those descendants are um, alive and well today. And so when you said identify, how what was the process for identifying the descendants? Well, you know, there were so many myths um, about the original GU-272. Um, and and um, you really just we really just had to bust through each of the major myths in order to do this. I mean, of course, the first myth was that they all died so that, you know, that wasn't true. And then the second myth was that they went to three places in southern Louisiana, two of which didn't have real names. I talked about that just a moment ago, the Bayou Mongo and the Bayou uh, Tabon. Uh, so we had to bust through that. But another myth, and I think your um, listeners will be very interested in this, another myth was the idea that they didn't have names, um, that they didn't have names, first names at all, or if they did have first names, they certainly didn't have surnames. They didn't have second names. And uh, neither of those things was true. They, they absolutely had names, first names, and in virtually every case, um, they had surnames as well. In fact, there are about 40 different surnames associated with the entire GU-272 uh, ancestor um, group. Um, it, it is the case that if you look strictly within the four walls of Georgetown and the Maryland Jesuits, 
you rarely, if ever, see um, their um, surnames. But if you look just one step over at the um, uh, the manifest of the ships, there were five ships in all um, that left Alexandria to transport them to Louisiana. Suddenly, everybody has a first name and a last name. And um, it doesn't take much detective work to sort of you know, when the Jesuits listen, they just have a first name, but um, they they also have an age and uh, which plantation they were from and family groups. And then the correlations are very, very, very strong on the manifest, uh, and, and you can sort of easily, you know, match them up. But when you do it on the manifest, you do it with the added benefit of finding the person's surname so that when you when we went down to southern louisiana to search the courthouses and the churches and the parishes and everything else um we weren't just looking for people without first names uh we were looking for people with first names last names and even ages so we could sort of understand date of birth and that is the initial clue that we followed through the documentary record um, beginning in 1838, up through the emancipation, and then up into 1870, which, as you know, is really kind of the beginning of the modern era. If you can trace uh, enslaved people to 1870, um, you're sort of well on your way into tracing them into the rest of the modern era. But, the, you know, make a long story short, we had first names, last names, and ages, and in many cases, family relationships. And that's what we used to look into... Um, the pre-emancipation documentary records that had contained references to these people by those first names, last names, and ages and family relationships. Okay, so with that information, then you you put out a call for people. How did people uh, know that you were even looking for them? Well, in the first instance, I uh, hired some genealogists, and we also had uh, some volunteer genealogists, all you know, very high-grade high, high professional genealogists. At various times, we've had up to 10 um, professional quality expert genealogists working on this. Um, and in the beginning, it was really a search through archival materials. I mean, I suppose another myth that um, – we had to bust was the idea that, oh, there was no document. You know, even if you had first names and last names and family relationships and ages, there was just no documentation about enslaved people before the Civil War and certainly not in the South. Well, that is complete bunk. That is completely untrue. We found, we have found very, very rich documentary references to these individuals by name and by location, including their ages and their family groups, as early as 1838. And you might say, well, what, what kind of records are they? Well, in the first instance, they are sacramental records, church records. Um, even though these enslaved people were baptized um, Catholics and married Catholics by the Maryland Jesuits and then sold to southern Louisiana, the very first thing these Catholics did, these black enslaved Catholics did when they got to southern Louisiana, was join Catholic churches. So they uh -huh. kept the faith. They kept the faith. Even though the church had broken faith with them and betrayed them, they kept the faith. So when you go to um, Catholic um, churches in the area of the three plantations, you will find, and we did find, 
our genealogists found um, the sacramental records of these people by name. So uh, baptisms, marriages, and in some cases, burials. And that was for 27 years, from 1838 to 1865. Another very, very important source of information about the lives of these individuals before um, emancipation was um, slave mortgages. You know, the planters never had very much cash. They they were always in debt, and they always mortgaged the most valuable thing they owned, which was not the land, and it was not the crops, and it was not the equipment. It was the people. So every year they would mortgage um, to local banks the slaves. And just like a mortgage today, there was a, an attachment of the collateral and in this case, it was people, and they would be listed by first name, last name, age, and family group. And you can, and, and then they were filed in the courthouses, which, which is where they sit today, and that's where we found them. We pulled these mortgages for these plantations, and sure enough, the names of the GU-272 in each of those three locations showed up year after year after year between 1838 and 1862. Um, so we were able to trace these people into emancipation, and then it was just a short jump to trace them to the 1870 federal census. And as I said, once you sort of trace somebody into 1870, you've, you've sort of made the bridge into the modern era, and it becomes much easier to trace them and their direct descendants um, down into the present day. Absolutely. Well, we're going to take a quick break come back, and then start talking about those that are lost and why. So uh, just Great. a quick break, and we'll come right back. Great. Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, with co-host Patricia Glover Howard. And you can join us every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where we will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and Stitcher.com. Well, you have been listening to Mr. Richard Cellini, founder of the Georgetown Memory Project, discuss the lost Jesuit slaves of Maryland. So let's take it 
another step further because you you talked about how you identified some of the descendants, but what about the lost slaves? How how did they become lost, and and how do you know they're lost? Well, you know, you raise a fascinating question. The GU two seventy two is has always been a bit of a mystery, but this is a puzzle wrapped inside of a mystery. You know, the lore had been that all 272 were um, sent to uh, to southern Louisiana and that that, that was the end of it. Um, but as we dug into it, we, we learned two things. Um, we learned, first of all, we learned that, that it, it was, the number was really never 272. As best we can tell, there were a total of 297 people involved. So that was that was kind of the first thing. That the GU two seventy two as they had come to be known, you know, the two hundred and seventy two is more of a marketing term or label, if you will, rather than an accurate census. It's just a catchphrase, I think is a better way of saying it. It's a catchphrase for describing this collection of people. Um um, but it's not an accurate census. A truly accurate census, we believe, of the people involved in the 1838 slave sale was about 297. But here's the interesting thing. Um, we could only find 206 of them in southern Louisiana. We searched everywhere. We turned over every stone and every place we expected to find people we did and information came tumbling out and we found slave mortgages and sacramental records and letters and um, uh, ship manifests, etc. And we found everything we were hoping to find except it only totaled 206. And yet we knew there were a total of 297. And after a couple of years of research, we realized that we had uncovered a, a second mystery in the whole thing, which is what happened to the, to the other 91. And the conclusion we came to was that they were never shipped to Louisiana, that 91 people had somehow been left behind in Maryland. Now, the first thing I want to say about the and – and, and those are the people we call the lost Jesuit slaves of Maryland, that somehow in all the tumult and all of the distraction of this uh, terrible transaction that unfolded over a period of years beginning in 1838, that 91 people who were supposed to be caught up in the dragnet somehow avoided and evaded capture and shipment to southern Louisiana. The first thing I want to say about that is that – is that 91 people is a lot of people. You know, we're talking about nearly 100 people. This is not a trivial group of people. Um, uh, before the Georgetown Memory Project made this announcement, previous estimates of how many people stayed behind in Maryland ranged from one or two on the low end to maybe eight or nine on the high end. Our research shows that it was actually more than 10 times that amount. It was 91 people. And uh, there's no evidence whatsoever that they were shipped to Louisiana. In fact, we have found a great deal of evidence suggesting that um, they stayed in uh, Southern Maryland. And so um, we reach a very important um, juncture. And this is where I think your call to action is particularly relevant. 
I know personally that there are a lot of African-American families from Southern Maryland who um, have very, very deep ties um, stretching into the colonial past of Maryland. They're African-American. They believe they have ties to slavery and they're Roman Catholic and they're very interested in the whole GU-272 story. But until recently, they believed that because they lived in Maryland, they, they couldn't be part of it because from what they had heard, everybody involved had been shipped to southern Louisiana. And your call to action is so vital because it dovetails with the recent discovery that, in fact, almost one-third, 272, stayed behind in Maryland. So if your family is African-American and has historical ties, uh, deep historical ties to southern Maryland and has a connection to slavery and is Roman Catholic and even shares some of the GU-272 surnames, the fact that your family is historically from Maryland doesn't mean that you're not part of the GU-272. You could simply be part of the 91 lost Jesuit slaves who remain behind. Um, I also want to emphasize, and I can go into this in greater detail later, but I right now just want to draw a line under it. Being left behind in Maryland was not necessarily a better fate uh, or a more favorable fate than being shipped to Louisiana. Um, it could have involved escape or resale to smaller plants, uh, plantations in Maryland um, or, um, or resale to North Carolina or the other Carolinas or Florida or Texas. Um, you know, it, I, I don't want people to think that, that somehow the people who stayed in, behind in Maryland had a better deal than other people because um, there's lots of reasons to believe that, that was a pretty perilous outcome. Um, in and of itself, perhaps just as bad, if not worse, than being sent to southern Louisiana. Right. Well, we have a caller and we have a question in the chat. So I'm going to take the caller first. Uh, caller 443, you have a question or a comment? Uh, yes. Hi. Good evening, uh, Bernice. This is Angela Walton Raji. And um, I had a question. Uh, whether or not there had been any outreach to the community of St. Francis Xavier in Baltimore City. That's the oldest Roman Catholic congregation in the country. And uh, many, and not just a handful, many of the families of that parish come from St. Mary's County, including uh, Dr. Agnes Callum, whose family goes back to the 1690s from St. Mary's, she has utilized the records at Healy Hall, basing her family history, of course. Um, I mean, she's, you know, certainly seventh or eighth generation, um, uh, well, she's deceased now, but uh, a Roman Catholic. And my question is, if you want a cluster of families with ties to Southern Maryland, Roman Catholic for generations, has there been any effort to touch base with the community, with the parish of, of St. Francis Xavier, um, considering their history and the legacy of those families? Not St. Francis Xavier in Baltimore. I mean, that's a revelation to me, and I'm thrilled to have it. Uh, uh, there are There's at least one other uh, St. Francis Xavier parish um, uh, further, further down in, I believe it's in St. Mary's County, um, and and we, we have had um, direct contact with those parishes. In fact, there was a June a Juneteenth celebration 
very recently, obviously, down in St. Mary's County, and we actually had people on the ground at a booth um, handing out flyers to people who attended that event. But but this um, so we, we've done our best, and we'll continue to do our best to um, reach um, these particular parishes in the particular counties where. Uh, the GU-272 were known to be enslaved. But you're adding a very, very, very important new piece to the puzzle uh, that St. Francis Xavier in Baltimore um, could be just a very close um, um, further step, uh, a very close step to the original Jesuit parishes uh, that were home to the GU-272 that could to this day have, you know, large clusters of uh, GU-272 descendants. So, yes, absolutely, we will reach out um, um, well, uh, to, to, to that parish and a, those people. Hmm? I would think it would be essential. I've been talking about it for many weeks. In fact, I know Bernice and I speak from hmm. time to time, and I've been wondering why there's been no contact or outreach. Dr. Callum has written numerous things. In fact, there's a collection of her work at the Maryland State Archives, her family's documented through sacramental records. In fact, at the time she used them, they, she was using the records at Healy Hall. I don't know if they're still there at Georgetown uh, or if they've been uh, relocated since um, the story of the 272 has come out. But um, she has, she's very familiar with those records and uh, would speak to our genealogy society about them all the time. And I've been waiting, I know, since the story came out in the last year or so, why aren't they talking to this cluster of families who belong mm. to this parish? Of course, they're in many other parishes now. But, um, Ava, if you just look at the work of Agnes Kellum, if you match the surname uh, of the 272, you know, Goff, Butler, uh, just all those names, Canes, uh, those names are straight out of St. Francis. And, um, again, it's been a community of faith since 1795. And yeah. her recent even predated that and um so that's you know it's 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 really critical and i would hope um you know i certainly will be ha be happy to follow up with some contacts uh in the saint francis community i know that uh dr callum's daughter dr martina callum has been on um the board of, of one of the uh organizations in saint mary's county i believe on Soderley plantation and other places as well right but, yeah um, now if you if you would email me um through the uh, our website is uh org, and there's a couple of uh, uh contact emails on there if you would email me um, I would love to pursue this. You know, I mean, you know, you're not the first person to say, gosh, why haven't they contacted us? And I want to assure people uh, it's not um, it's not arrogance. Um, it, it's it's more like ignorance on our part. You know, we're we're kind of stumbling through the fog and the mist of time here ourselves. And we're learning as we go. And um, if, if we haven't reached out to people, it's not because we are arrogantly uh, overlooking them or think they have nothing to add quite quite the uh, quite the opposite uh um it's just that you know there are so many things for us yet to learn and and yet to know and that's why forums like this one are so vital where we have to reach out to each other and share information with each other because you know honestly um we, we, we just sort of jump-started the research process with the archival materials, but um, the Georgetown Memory Project would, would not 
be anywhere close to the results it's produced had it not been for the fact that people from the community, the African-American community, the Catholic community, the GU-272 community, reach out to us and engage us and grab us by the scruff of the neck and say, hey, dummy, look over here. This is where you should be looking. And if it weren't for that active encouragement and inspiration and collaboration of the communities most directly affected, we wouldn't be able to do this work because, you know, we there's so much we don't know. We don't even know what we don't know. And we, we are highly, highly dependent on the goodwill of people from these communities who can um, sort of help steer us on to the right path. So I, I want to thank you for raising this uh, particular issue, but I also want to encourage all listeners um, to to please reach out to us because, as I said, sometimes we don't even know what we don't know. So it would be a great blessing to us if people would um, bring their suggestions forward and suggest uh, where we should look next. Right, and thank you so much, Angela, for calling in. Well, we do have another question in the chat room, though. What if you have surnames that match some of the GU-272 and were in the counties that you mentioned? Now, the DNA matches are in Louisiana, but they can't make the connection. How can a person determine with certainty that they are or are not a descendant? Well, um, a couple of things. Um, I, you know, I would say that people fall into three categories in general when they contact us. There, there are some people who fall into a category which, which, I mean, you can never say that there's no chance somebody isn't connected, but by and large, you'd have to look at it and say, okay, there's no historical connection to Maryland or Louisiana. There's no history anywhere in the family tree of the GU-272 surnames, and there's not even a connection to Catholicism. And again, I would never say never, but that's a collection of people um, who have a very, very, very low probability of being associated with a GU-272. It's always worth a try, but the probability is very low. The next category up is, let's call it uncertain, um, but it's uncertain with a, a great many clues. Um, and as I said, those clues are um, historical ties to Southern Maryland, um, a, a, an historical connection to slavery, um, one or more of the GU-272 surnames, and you added another piece, which is DNA matches to people who are both in Louisiana and Maryland. Um, even if it's not um, fully documented and proven, I think by the time you get into the middle category, you have to really take that seriously, and you have to get in contact with the Georgetown Memory Project through our website, which is georgetownmemoryproject.org. Um, you know, I call it a kind of uncertain category, but let's face it, there's a lot of clues there. I mean, I just rattled off four or five, and the probabilities of somebody having all four of those or four or all four or five of those is pretty remote. So if you actually fit that general profile or even a big part of it, um, you know, it may not be a certainty, but I think there's a very strong possibility of some sort of tie to uh, the GU-272. And I urge you to get in contact with us through our website, again, www.georgetownmemoryproject.org. And then that leads me to the third category, which is once you're in contact with us, we can um, compare the 
known names from your family tree to our database of 6,286 and see if there are any matches. Now, you don't have to know the name of your enslaved great-great-great-great-grandfather from the 1820s. It may be a brother and sister. It may be an uncle or an aunt or a great-uncle or great-aunt, um, but it, it, it might be, you know, maybe just your grandfather, but, you know, in a database of 6,286 names, you'd be surprised how many times we're able to sort of link somebody up very quickly um, to the existing database. And if that doesn't work, you know, we can always do original genealogical research to see um, if we can kind of make a firm uh, uh, documentary connection between your family today and the GU-272. So that's kind of, you know, I know that's a little long-winded, but that's that's kind of basically the way it works. I think the first question people should ask themselves is, is there any remote connection? You know, again, I would say if you don't have any historical connection to Maryland, Louisiana, any of the surnames, you're not Catholic, et cetera, et cetera, uh, you're always welcome to contact us, but I think the chances are low. But if you fall into that middle category, please absolutely contact us. Take an Ancestry.com DNA test. See if you match up to people in Louisiana and Maryland. Share that information with us and let us, you know, take the next steps uh, of the journey with you and see if we can actually make a connection to the GU-272. You know, one thing I'll say, and I want to assure everybody who's listening, the Georgetown Memory Project never excludes anybody from membership in the GU-272. Not only don't we do that, we can't do that. There's no way to exclude anybody from membership. Um, the worst that happens is we say we can't include you definitively at this time, but we're constantly adding new information to our databases, so we encourage you to to um, check back with us in six, nine, 12 months and see if we've learned more. But at no, at no time will we ever say, you know, you absolutely are not connected to the GU-272. It's just not the way genealogy works. And you already have someone in the chat room stating that she fits every category except finding a direct connection. So well. she's going to follow up with you. That's wonderful, yeah. And by the way, it's not. And 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 uh, I want to thank both you, Bernice, and um, the person in the chat room for making a very important point, which is, um, it's not a rigid checklist. It's not, you know, you don't have to have five out of fives. It's it's more like a ladder of clues. And you know, the higher you can climb up the ladder, the greater the likelihood. But, you know, um, if you have only one or two of them, that's wonderful. You know, I mean. Um, if you have one, two, three, you know, very good. Now, like our person in the chat room, having four or five is pretty phenomenal, but I don't want anybody to think it's a rigid list. Um, you know, we're, we're building bridges here. This is a bridge, not a plank. We're not, we're not trying to divide people into in and out. What we're trying to do is cast a wide net and find as many people as we can possibly find and then take the time and the care and the effort to really do the hard work of trying to connect them through the documentary chain to the original members of the GU-272. Right, and I even shared with you a, a pension file that I reviewed with the surname Darcy. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I'm going to send that information over to you because you may be able to see something in that file that may connect this Dorsey family to the Dorseys that you're looking for, or at least those that are listed with that surname. 
Uh, yeah. Speaking of surnames, could you just just rattle off some of the surnames so that those who are listening to this, it's going to become a podcast. We'll listen to this podcast. They will have these names, and definitely it's being posted in the uh, chat room uh, how to uh, contact you through the Georgetown Memory Project. Great. So I'm going to list, there are about 40 different, four zero different surnames associated with the GU-272, and I'm just going to read through them. Um, and if you have any of these uh, family surnames in your family tree, then um, that's a pretty important clue. And I will tell you that people who have one of these names typically have two, three, five, or six, because these groups tended to be highly inter interrelated. So it's an especially interesting thing when you can point not just to one of these names, but three, four, five, or six. And here are the names. Anderson, Barnes, Blacklock, Blair, Brown, Butler, Campbell, Conti. That's C-O-N as in Nancy, T as in Thomas, E-E, Conti. Coyle, Kremble, Cutchmore, which is sometimes uh, spelled Cutchmo, Cush, and even Cucumber. And then another name we see often is Diggs, D-I-G-G-E-S, or some variation. Dorsey. Eaglin, E-A-G as in giant, L-I-N as in Nancy, Eaglin. Ford and Guff. Guff is G-O-U-G-H. Greenleaf, including variants like um, green, or greenleaf spelled with an I-E-F, or greenleaf spelled L-E-A-F. Another GU-272 surname is Hall, H-A-L-L, Harris, a very common and powerful um, GU-272 surname is Hawkins, but also Hill, Jones, Johnson, Kelly, Kirchman. You'll also find among the GU-272 family the Langleys, the Mahoney's, the Masons, Merrick. Here's one, Noland, N-O-L-A-N-D, sometimes also um, spelled Nolanti or Nolan without a D at the end. Plowden. P-L-O-W-E-N. Another big, important GU-272 family surname is Queen, um, Q-U-E-E-N, but sometimes it evolves into Quinn, Q-U-I-N. Both are important. Riley, Scott. Here's another interesting name. Sweeten, S-W-E-E-T as in Thomas O-N. Sometimes it's pronounced Sweden, like the country, and sometimes Sweetum but some variant of Sweeten. There's another group called the Wares, W-A-R-E, West, Wilton, and finally, Yorkshire. Those are the GU2 um, family names. And if you have any of those in your family tree, that's a very, very strong um, indication that you may, in fact, um, be related to the lost Jesuit slaves of Maryland. Now, would you sometimes find these names in Virginia rather than in Maryland? 
Yes. Um, the Jesuits had, the, the Maryland Jesuits um, had outpost missions in um, places outside of the state of Maryland itself. Um, they had a mission in Alexandria, Virginia. Um, so um, we know for a fact that some of the Jesuit slaves were sent to um, Virginia. Uh, also, the District of Columbia, um, where Georgetown College was located, but also southeastern Pennsylvania, um, uh, above the Mason-Dixon line, the Jesuits had farms and plantations, and it was known that even though Pennsylvania was a free state, that um, um, the Jesuits, the Maryland Jesuits, frequently sent their servants and slaves to those farms um, in southeastern Pennsylvania, even as far up as Philadelphia. So um, the fact that, that your people aren't in Maryland per se, much less those five counties, is not dispositive. It's really kind of a larger region of uh, northern Virginia, uh, the District of, of Columbia, the entire state of Maryland, and southeastern Pennsylvania. This is fantastic. I mean, it's wonderful to hear you, you know, tell us, you know, throw that net out as far as you can. But with yeah. these surnames and with these locations and the other criteria you have mentioned, let's just get the word out, everybody. Uh, get it out as far as we can and see what, what can happen. Uh, see if we can find some of those descendants of the lost uh, slaves, of the Jesuit slaves. Uh, now, is there anything else you feel you want everyone to know before we close out tonight's show? Well, I think you touched on the fact that word of mouth is important. Um, uh, you also touched on another thing that I want to emphasize, which is, you know, let's not say no to the data. Let's let the data say no to us. I want to tell briefly, uh, Bernice, the story that you shared with me before we went on the air. You said that you'd talked to somebody whose ancestor was named Dorsey. And, of course, Dorsey is um, one of the uh, GU-272 surnames. But then you said, well, gosh, yeah, but, you know, there was a problem because um, although they were originally from Anne Arundel County, which is one of your um, counties, um, some a Civil War pension actually showed that the person – spent much of his life living in Georgetown and then later Alexandria. And there was a moment there where um, the person you were talking to could have said no to the data. But Bernice, as you and I talked about it, we're like, no, no, wait a minute. As we just said, yes, Anne Arundel County is a jumping off point, but the Jesuits also sent their slaves to Georgetown in the District of Columbia, and they had a little obscure mission in Alexandria, Virginia. So all those extra things, far from being distractions or negative things, were actually confirmatory things. So, um, you know, um, these little details are very important, and they're just as likely to be helpful as they are to be, you know, distracting or hurtful to the cause. So, so don't 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 say no to the data. Just just bring the data forward and 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 let people mull it uh, and think about it. And then the final thing I'd say is we should never discount the importance of time because, you know, if we can't make a connection today, um, as I said. Six, nine, 12 months, even a couple of years from now, we might have new eyes and new information and 
new insight that allows us to make a connection today or, you know, a couple of years from now that we're not able to make today. So I think we really have to have a lot of faith and a lot of word of mouth and a lot of collaboration to kind of bring this community fully to light. So that's, that's my advice to the people who are listening tonight. Okay. And then you also have another question. Well, you have two questions. First of all, are other universities like UNC launching projects and consulting with you? Um, not many, you know, um, University of Mississippi, Ole Miss, um, has been, um, as I mentioned, you know, Georgetown University is not uh, offering any, uh, financial support or assistance. I mean, I, 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 to be very candid, uh, even though there are dozens of universities, including UNC and Georgetown and others that have an historical collect, uh, connection to slavery. The reality is that basically no institution has proactively and systematically gone searching for the descendants of their slaves. I mean, it sort of happened fortuitously and randomly. They'll certainly accept phone calls and be responsive to and reactive to the descendants of their slaves. But no institution, including Georgetown, has, is engaged in the the rigorous, ongoing, systematic search for its slaves. You know, I think the reality is it's always going to be done by independent groups um, like the Georgetown Memory Project that are just one step removed from the institution um, and just feel it's important work to be done um, because there, there seems to be some barrier that prevents the institutions themselves from actually going to look for and identify and proactively contact the descendants of their former slaves. Okay, and then there's a question about DNA kits. If someone suspects they may be a descendant, what do you recommend as far as DNA kits? Um, Ancestry.com has tests. I think they're reasonable. You know, I mean, we don't show for <laughs> Ancestry. We make no money. You know, there's, we have no tie to Ancestry, but they have DNA kits that sometimes are available as for as little as $69. I think more normally it's $99. But when you take your, when you submit your DNA, um, you know, try to pick the oldest living relative you can find, frequently a grandmother or a great aunt or something. Um, but when you get your list of results back, you will get page after page after page of matches. Your first clue will be that you somehow, even though your family is from Louisiana or Maryland, that you have matches in both Louisiana and Maryland. And you'll say, hmm, that's strange. You know, I'm from Louisiana. Why would I have matches in Maryland? Or I'm from Maryland. Why would I have matches in Louisiana? That's your first thing. But the other thing is when you go through those pages and pages of matches, uh, if you're connected to the GU-272, you will find that some of those kits have a designation called Georgetown Project, not Georgetown Memory Project, just Georgetown Project against their name. Those are um, a collection of about 25 DNA samples that the Georgetown Memory Project administers, and they um, represent the DNA of known and verified GU-272 descendants that collectively represent about half of all GU-272 families. So when you submit your DNA, if as you go through your pages and pages of matches, you find that some kits that you connect with have this designation Georgetown Project, that's an especially vital clue that you should contact uh, us, especially if it's one, two, three, five, or six um, of the kits named Georgetown Project, because that tells you right there that you at least have a DNA match 
um, to verify GU-272 descendants. And we don't use that as a final proof point that you're connected to the GU-272, but it is a very strong indicator that we should take a much closer look at the documentary um, evidence trail and see if we can connect you up through the paper records. Okay, and then let me see the question. There are descendants like myself who live with the GU-272 who knows that happened to many who are missing. They are not lost. <laughs> okay, they say they know some are missing. They're not lost. Okay. That's. I think that's well put. Uh, I think that's very well put. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. I always if say, I don't have un- any un- Unknown, but... I always say they're unknown but not unknowable. We, you know, eventually but the goal is to unknowable. Yeah, Absolutely. the goal is to get this Well, I I have the phone line open if anyone would like to call in to ask a question. If not, we will close out the show tonight. And I just want to thank you. Thank you so much for sharing this important call to action tonight with us to find the lost Jesuit Slaves of Maryland. And everyone else, please remember, your ancestors left footprints, and you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. Now, you can continue this discussion, and remember, this is a call to action. So share this information with as many people as you can on Facebook, on Twitter. Get the word out, because that's what it's all about tonight. It is a call to action to get the word out. And also remember to listen to the African Roots Podcast with Angela Walton Raji and also watch for the Black Progen Live with host Nika Sul Smith. Thank you so much for joining research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. And also check out my services at BB's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC. And my website is www.geniebroots.com. Well, I look forward to you joining us next week. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, with co-host, Patricia Glover Howard. Good night, everyone. Good night, Mr. Silverman. Good night. Good night.